Hello, and welcome to another episode of Can Marketing Save the Planet? Today, we're going to be discussing some of the hidden things on our plates. That's right, we're going to be talking about food. And to do that, we are joined by Julianne Calouette-Noble, who is the Managing Director of the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Welcome, Julianne. It's great to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. So, food. It's a it's a big topic, isn't it? I think it just is. by way of kicking off, um, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work you guys do at the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, your listeners might be able to hear that I am American, but I've been living in London for the past 11 years. And when I first moved to the UK, I started my career working for Jamie Oliver, doing campaigning for better school food and school food education. So my personal background was kind of a mix in uh, both nutrition and education. So Jamie was a good combination of both of those sets of skills. And I spent a long time going up and down the country, seeing what was actually happening in schools, kind of 10 years on from the original school dinners campaign that Jamie did. Um, through that work, I saw some amazing things that were happening in ways that we were teaching our children and, and huge improvements. And I also saw ways in which our food culture has not progressed, um, over the last 10 years and places where our food culture, um, has only continued to, to decline. Um, and then also with that work, I saw, how powerful chefs can be in inspiring people and changing diets and changing habits. Um, If you think over the the kind of last 10, 15 years and you see the sort of rise of, um, you know, Yotamoto Lenghi in the UK, and I sort of think of him often as this um, poster child for how chefs can change hearts and minds just Mm -hmm. through amazing tasting food. And there's so much then food that trickles down into our supermarkets and trickles down into our fast food and all of that. That's inspired by kind of a chef that, that was pushing forward a a kind of plant centric um, salad based, you know, uh, international vision. So that sort of led me into looking at more the restaurant space and coming over to the SRA. Um, And we at the Sustainable Restaurant Association are an organization that has been working with hospitality here in this country for about 10 years. And uh, we were founded with this vision around how do you define what sustainability looks like in hospitality? Because food very much is at the center of a lot of these sustainability questions. And I think... um, if you ask any restaurateur, any chef, if you any even diner about sustainability, generally they have something to say, but whether or not they're thinking about all of the different things involved is a different question. So the SRA set forward to kind of put out a framework that was holistically looking at sustainability so that it was everything between the food that you're sourcing and the decisions you're making there to the environmental impact of the restaurant itself, like the water and the energy use and the waste within your restaurant. And then also, very importantly, the social impact of the restaurant and the ways in which restaurants are treating their own workforce, which is of the utmost importance um, at the current moment that we find ourselves in. So set out to do that. We started with 50 founding restaurants. Um, We now work with about 12,000 kitchens across the country. Um, We have global partners as well. And in, in 
22, we're really looking at how does that um, work kind of amplify globally to help create um, networks for restaurants of best practice and sharing ideas. Because you guys have recently changed how you do your membership, haven't you, from moving from a sort of intention to more action-based approach? Yeah. So I I was kind of careful in not calling us a membership organization, which I'm like getting used to doing because we very much started as a membership model and really spent a lot of time during COVID thinking about what that means. Um, We have found ourselves in the most difficult 18 months that the restaurant industry has ever faced. And then, um, you know, you kind of take global pandemic and, you know, maybe hopefully we're seeing sort of the end of, of the massive disruptions from that, although touch wood. Um, and we, and the hospitality industry was immediately faced with the challenges of Brexit and the lack of, uh, movement of people in this country. And, um, so we've got massive, massive staffing shortages. We've got supply chain shortages and all these things. So hospitality is has kind of reeled from one crisis to the other. And then mm. there's this big looming crisis, which is climate change. And I think for the first time, um, hospitality started to feel what some of these impacts of climate change might look like for the restaurant industry. So you know, what happens when you have supply chain shortages because of climate and poor growing seasons and unpredictable weather and the movement of people is going to change massively because of climate. And what does that mean for jobs? So all of a sudden restaurants are starting to think that way. And for us as an organization, it no longer felt right to be a membership based organization. We don't want to be a club. We don't want to be something that people pay lip service to or join and treat it like a gym membership and never really go. And instead, we want to be a resource for the industry that's really driving them towards sustainable actions and change. So this framework you've developed, Julianne, that sounds like it's aligned very closely with many of the UN Sustainable Development Goals when you talked about people and the, the waste and the water and, and the, the change. Is that, is that, was that the basis for, the, for this framework that you are now supplying and supporting and educating your, not members, but the, you know, the restaurant, these 12,000 kitchens that you are supporting? Is it that framework and a structure that you are kind of building awareness because not many people are aware of the UN sustainability goals. You know, it's it's not like a you go into most restaurants, are you aware of these things? Do you have a framework? These things are you measuring your, you know, your output against these things. So is that was that the basis? Yeah. So we we did not we originally created our framework through consultation both with the industry and with the kind of campaigning organizations, civil society organizations, big NGOs in this space. So um, whether that was the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals or whether that was, um, you know, the Sustainable Fish Cities campaign that has been run by Sustain in the UK. We've kind of pulled all of that information together to help structure our framework and then really put it into language that makes sense from an operator's perspective. Now, it's really important to us that we show how the sustainability, the sustainable development goals underpin each of these actions, because so much of the sustainable development goals, like you say, people might not be aware of, but they only mean something so much as everybody's contributing towards them. So, you know, there's no point in having an SGG 12.3 looking at food waste if restaurant, if, you know, the industry isn't 
um, aware or contributing towards understanding that there is a global target set around reduction. There are some global resources in action and they can contribute towards those actions. It also then makes them feel meaningful, you know, Hospitality makes up such a big sector, uh, such a big element of our economy, such a big section of employment in this country is in the hospitality sector. But they don't fall into these normal formats of like business, you know, I mean, sometimes in their head offices. Sure. Yes, they're super familiar with ESG frameworks and how to report against them and all of that. But the average person on the floor and the average touch point for a diner with that person isn't going to be aware. They don't fall into that sort of way of doing business. Um, And so it's really important for us to kind of humanize those sorts of targets for them. Yep. Because I think, I mean, education, this this is why me and Michelle started this podcast series. This is why we wrote the book, because the the amount, it's not about being an expert in everything. It's about just understanding. I mean, and, and food, whether it's in relation to waste, supply chains, food poverty, it's a problem that we all need to face up to. And it's a problem that society has to fix together. I mean, what are some of these, we called this podcast, obviously the hidden things on your plate. What are some of the hidden things on your plate that, you know, you think people should be aware of, but aren't necessarily, they don't think about when they go to a restaurant or have a meal. So I think, um, that especially in the moment that we're finding ourselves speaking kind of post cop post all of this noise around net zero targets and goals and what a carbon free future looks like and all of that. I think people need to understand that um, the embedded carbon footprint in their dining choices is actually one of the most impactful parts of their lives. So I think all of us have grown up really, um, Uh, you know, I think we understand a bit that driving our cars or maybe the way that we heat our homes or that we, you know, we talk about not taking flights and things, but the reality is, uh, unless you're a business executive that's flying all over the place, unless you're Boris Johnson flying to cop on a private plane, it's not necessarily your one holiday, family holiday year that you need to feel guilty about. There's a lot of other ways that you can mitigate that personal footprint. And one of the biggest ways to do that is through your food choices. Now, again, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. We taught, we learned a lot about food miles. I think good, you know, especially children mm-hmm. now still are really getting well-educated on food miles and, and where their foods come from. Not, again, not always the problem, um, depending on the impact of that actual food, the farming of it and the intensity of that. And, you know, the reality is, Meat and dairy is the majority of where our carbon footprint lies. Now, is that to say that we should all be vegan tomorrow? No, but that's to say that we should all be conscious of that. And we should think about how we can make this less but better choices in our meat. So I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'm American. I am uh, from California. I'm from a place that has... Um, water scarcity issues and they're being impacted constantly by agriculture in in my home state. Um, It's not a place with lots of, uh, it's a place that's very great, a climate for growing fruit, vegetables, all that sort of stuff. It's not a great climate for for, uh, grasslands and raising, you know, cattle and sheep. 
here we do have a climate that is means that we do have loads of rolling hills that are covered in grasses that we can have sheep and cows on, but we aren't isn't necessarily um, a good climate or conditions for growing other things. So we do have a local farming system that should have animals on it. It makes sense for the land that we're on. So if we can think more consciously about the choices that we're making, if we can say we will have a bit of meat or dairy in our diet, but I'm going to focus on high quality British meat that is raised by farmers that are taking care of the land and all of that sort of stuff, which probably means I can only afford to have it once or twice a week. And, you know, so it's those balances that we're making as, as humans. And I don't, it's not to get into a heated conversation about vegan versus not vegan. It's to say, how can we all be more conscious about the choices that we're making? So, yeah, I think thinking about the carbon in, in, in those things is a really important and caring about the farmer um, at the end of that. And then I think it starts to make you think what else is hidden and, you know, the costs, the costs of the food. We're, we're, we're getting so used to um, artificially cheap food. And, um, and again, it's this kind of less but better mentality. How can we shift away from um, a weekly shop that needs everything? all the time. Um, you know, do we really need strawberries for our children in, in December? Um, if we can shift our mindsets to say, actually, it can be a really fun and educational and engaging thing with your kids to take them through seasonality of fruit instead of just having, you know, bananas and berries all the time. Talk to them about the fact that right now we're in winter. And so, you know, I've got a, you know, pomegranate, I've got the first of some of the citrus and I've got a lot of apples and pears around. And that's what, you know, that's the things that are going to be snacks for my kids. Um, and, and not very much of it because, you know, that's the, the season that we're in. And so I guess that's, and I was going to say, I guess that's where this education of the chefs and the restaurants comes into play, because I know in the Isle of Wight, there's a fabulous restaurant we go to and they have a big board up that showcases what's in season, why this is what they're cooking with, you know, what, what, what will come around. And it's, it is educational to see that, but you don't see it that often. Um, and I suppose, you know, we have now got used to this idea like you say of we can go to the supermarket and everything is there the strawberries are there the blueberries are there. you know every it doesn't matter time of year or or what is going on um so that is a big education piece isn't it and and i suppose if it's like the same conversation Gemma and I keep having with, you know, it's like if the supermarkets all came together and said, this is what we do, we're going to focus on removing plastic bags. If restaurants all came together and said, you know what, we we are just going to create our food and our menus to a seasonal balance and ensure that we're educating the, the the guests that come through our doors then that that is where it starts to really become a behavioral change yeah and I think I think you've brought on to, to a couple really good points there one is um you know sharing with, with the consumer and I think one one key insight is that um, because dining has been so di- so disrupted this year, because yeah. we spent so much of the year out of restaurants and things, um, it is one of the first times where I'm hearing from restaurants, um, 
a, a deeper willingness to play with customer perception a bit or to change things that had been long thought unchangeable about their restaurant. So when we had to switch to, to you know, to, to um, take out only, restaurants had to edit their menus for some, sometimes for the first time because certain things didn't travel well and certain formats didn't work. And, you know, I've heard from kind of large, they will go unnamed chains that felt that they were never, that the, the consumer comes in and they expect a three-page menu from them and they need to have all of those things available at the time. But when they realized that they could do that and nobody complained, then actually um, it gave them more freedom to be more courageous yeah. about taking some things yeah. off the menu. Yeah. So we as diners and as consumers need to recognize that shorter menus are a good thing. We want, we should, we should allow our restaurants, we should allow those places to have shorter menus and to make those choices. And then you talked about supermarkets there and said, uh, and again, I think that a lot of there, there are a lot of interesting things that supermarkets are doing in this country around sustainability. They really are. Um, But there is a sense that you can't take things away from yeah. the consumer. And, and I think we should challenge that a little bit, right? I because agree. there's this Absolutely. kind of adding in of all the sustainability stuff and adding in and adding in, but at some point we've got to take away, we've got yeah. to take away in order to, to move forward. And you, you talk about, you know, this, there's balance and then there's, you know, this reducing consumption. And, and sometimes the only way to do that is to take away choice. I, I was in, I was in the supermarket this morning and it's like, I don't know how many types of alternatives to dairy and milk we need like literally yeah. it's an entire wall it's an aisle, a whole aisle now dedicated to it but also around you know this balance again you mentioned fly people focus on flying and on holidays and stuff like that but greenhouse gas emissions are any well aviation is two and a half percent food yeah. is 10 and it's something that we can tackle we can absolutely tackle through educating ourselves reducing what we eat making some different choices and uh, marketing plays a huge role in food, doesn't it? Whether it's positive or negative, both in terms of selling you stuff and educating you on the way. So what more do you think marketing can be doing to help sort of tackle this problem whilst also, you know, as we talked, you've talked about behavioral change, you know, what we eat and why we eat it. What what more do you think marketing can be doing to, to actually start to make these changes happen? So... I think, as you said, that there is like good and and um, negative that that marketing can kind of be doing. And I think one thing that we really need to be questioning and wary of is as the kind of rise of um, Instagram marketing and social marketing and all of that um, influencer marketing when it comes to food is is leading to a culture of like these iconic dishes in places. And, and so people are ordering and they're ordering all of these things to take the pictures that they want to take of them rather than the consumption of them. And so I really think that as um, marketing influencers in particular need to rethink what their messages are around when they're take when they're doing that, when they're paid, because we're seeing so much of um restaurants marketing budgets going toward less traditional advertising more mm-hmm. towards influencer advertising and influencer marketing and all of that really think that comes with great responsibility and we need to take not take that lightly um and you know we we kind of have skirted around this idea around food waste but food waste is a huge piece of the emissions puzzle and 
Um, so I think that's really important on marketers to be talking about it. And uh, when they're posting these dishes and talking about, um, you know, prioritizing eating it all, taking it home, doing all that sort of stuff. Um, I think that, uh, that marketing can absolutely start selling these concepts. If we could be talking about the um, most sustainable dishes on the menu, as often as we're talking about the burger, that's going to, yeah. you know, that's going to grab people's attention. Um, that influences choice. So we saw a, there was a restaurant, um, Moro, that's a Spanish restaurant in London. And it's kind of a, you know, institution, amazing, amazing food. Um, and we, a, a few years ago had done a dinner with a lot of kind of high level chefs across London to talk about meat reduction and, and ways to influence customer behavior, um, without sort of explicitly lecturing on, on, um, meat. And again, not to say that we need to all shift to being vegan restaurants and, um, but Moro, out of the off the back of that, um, decided to to you know we we had kind of cited a bunch of behavior change research and things, and they decided to put to try one of these things, which was to put the vegetarian main as the first option on the menu, yeah, and yep. just shift it and play with it. They saw an increase of sales of that dish of fourteen percent, and it was all of a sudden somebody orders it, and then you see it coming out, and it was this beautiful dish, and then somebody else goes, "Oh, I, what's that that they're having? We'll have that," and then you see this kind of um, spiral. That's a marketing decision, right? To prioritize and talk about that dish, yeah, not yeah. just to leave it at the bottom of the menu. Yeah. It is those priorities, and also making more in their specials and and you know this is our special rather than it's it's the fish or the meat dish you know make it a vegetarian or even a vegan dish um, totally and yeah. I think you know this is again maybe borderline what's what's marketing what's operations in this but in just naming your dishes on your menu one of the things that we we were just talking about with a lot of our large groups and chains is one of the primary reasons for plate waste in a restaurant is ingredients that are in the dish that weren't listed on the menu or in the name. So when you're trying to, when you're coming up with some sort of like fancy or cute name for your dish, but you're not explaining on the menu what's actually in it, um, then you end up with customers leaving something on the side or not wanting that thing. They didn't realize that it came with that on top or this thing that they didn't ask for. Um, It's a huge driver of plate waste. And so if you can rethink in how you're naming your dishes, how you're talking about them, to make sure that you're including all of that stuff, to make sure that you're pointing out that that thing actually comes with a side salad and you didn't need to order a salad as well or whatever. Yeah. Bristol was was um, was named a vegan capital. I think it was of Europe or of, of the UK. And they, they did that by working with the restaurants and the chefs um, and designing the menus around veganism. But they also did protests, not protests in so much as activism, but they educated the people of Bristol on the values and the health benefits of being vegan. And suddenly there's this, just this huge influx of people wanting to take on that lifestyle because guess what? They understand what comes yeah. with it, which is absolutely key. So I thought it was really fascinating reading about sustainable cities the other week and and, and Bristol coming up there and, and looking at how they did it. Again, it, it, it's through marketing, you know, through mm-hmm. education, through awareness. And yeah. I, wa- I wonder if, you know, we talk about food labeling and we talk about the red, amber, green that we see on sugars and fats and, yep. and those things. I wonder, I, I mean, I don't think I've seen anything like this yet in a restaurant, but like, you say I haven't been out to many restaurants because we've all been a bit locked down um but but 
that element where on the menu there is what is the most sustainable choice, you know, because for me as a consumer, I, if I saw that detail of this is, this is sustainable, this is, this is this many carbon whatevers, and this is red, green or amber, I would definitely be making some choices about the type of food that I ate when I was out. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. We, as a, um, as an org, are working, we're running a campaign at the moment that we are relaunching for January next year that's called One Planet Plate around restaurants promoting that dish in their menu that is their One Planet Plate and giving some prominence on menus and showing that this is the, the kind of sustainable choice that you could be making. Um, and then you brought up carbon labeling, which is another kind of um, way in. And uh, we are starting to see a rise in that. A few years ago, so there's a long time, um, there's a National Trust property in the Lake District that's called Stickle Barn that has a pub that um, they've been carbon labeling their menu for ages and ages and um, and have been posting it. And it was sort of an anomaly. It wasn't, you know, they were doing it there. They, um, they have lots of amazing kind of sustainability initiatives up there, but it's not necessarily mainstream coming from there. And all of a sudden there is a flood of mainstream products on the market to help restaurants do this to carbon label. Um, And there is a um, a small vegan restaurant that's called Stem and Glory that's that's Cambridge and uh, London based. And they are introducing carbon labeling across all of their menus. I know a lot of universities that are starting to do it. Um, And I have a few high street chains that are kind of, in talks and thinking about it for the next year. Now, from my perspective, I think it's really important that you are looking at a mechanism like a red, amber, green, um, not just a generic carbon, because I think that's similar to calorie counting on a menu, which now is having to be put in place in this this country for, for large chains. But the data on that shows yeah. that it actually con- it confuses consumers. It yeah. hasn't actually helped with people eating less no. and stuff. So I think you want to make sure that in that you're marketing and telling that story in a way that makes sense, yeah. not just throwing up another number that people don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So your marketing has a big role to play in this. So Julianne, we like to ask all our guests the same three quick fire questions to wrap up the show. So I guess question one is, do you think, can marketing save the planet? I absolutely think that marketing can save the planet because I think at the end of the day, marketing is messaging, right? And it's about how um, you're able to get your message across, how you're able to make people ready to receive your message. Um, And I think, you know, sustainability aside, we are facing so many challenges globally that require us to be better communicators Mm -hmm. and better at collaborating, talking to each other, um, getting our messages across in a way that people are able to receive them. And if we could focus our attention of all of us, you know, comms professionals and people that are out there that have for the last, you know, hundred and whatever years have been focused on selling things and instead put those, put those skill sets towards how can we, you know, refresh and rethink how we pitch various ideas to various populations. Um, I think it's massive. Yep. And so, um, and so what about your thoughts on what business is going to look like in the next 10 years? What, what, do you, what would you ideally want it to look like? 
So I think we hit on something earlier in our conversation when we talked about editing the menu. And I think that the biggest shift that we're going to see in businesses, I mean, we're seeing, we're starting to see it anyway, right? And we're seeing it in, in sustainable fashion. We're yep. seeing it in sustainable food. I think gone is the era of um, more is more and kind of abundance um, uh, signifying luxury. I think we are entering the era of um, slimmed down choice of, of um, edited wardrobes, of edited menus and all of that sort of stuff. And I also am going to put out there that I also believe that the future needs to be an edited work week. I think that we're going to shift to a four-day work week and we need to. Um, yeah. We need to recognize that how we work is not the same as how we worked in the Victorian era when yep. we initially launched the 40-hour work week. Um, and we don't need to continue to be so efficient all the time, producing, producing, producing. We actually need to slim back on that. And business needs to slim back on how we operate so that we can spend more of our lives educating our children, more of our lives in nature, more of our lives taking care of uh, people and the planet. Yeah. Amazing. And Perfect. if you were to give one piece of advice to others around getting started with sustainable marketing, what would it be? I, I think, I think get clear on, um, on the issues. I think, you know, a bit of understand, we've been talking this whole podcast, right, about awareness and understanding. And I think, um, you know, looking at both of your journeys, it's like once you know some of this stuff, you can't unknow it. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, um, you know, get learning. There's so many resources out there. And then, and then vice versa, if I was to think not just advice towards getting started with sustainable marketing, but for anybody wanting to get started in their career, I would say that we all have a job to play towards creating this sustainable future, towards solving climate change and these challenges. And look at where does your skill set contribute to that? So I think you guys are an amazing example of saying you have these skills, they are in marketing. And so let's put that towards it. It's not saying everyone needs to abandon everything they've ever done to be a, you know, a farmer, a campaigner, whatever those things are. It's to say, how can my skill set best contribute towards the future that we need to see? Julianne, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And thank uh, you so much. And for anyone who's listening, who is in the restaurant or food industry, go and check out the uh, Sustainable Restaurant Association's website and all of the wonderful work we're doing, they're doing. And we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes as well. So Julianne, thank you once again. It's been great. 